This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. World War I has always fascinated me, and so has the decision on what to collect, interpret, and exhibit. So today's episode is a perfect blend of interest and topics. What we preserve says more about us than it often even says about the history itself, a reason we were excited to bring this fascinating discussion to our listeners. This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're excited to be joined by Stacy Peterson, who's the exhibit manager and registrar at the National World War I Museum and Memorial. Um, and like all episodes of PreserveCast, we love to get to know our guests before we dive into their work and uh, the topic at hand. Um, so, Stacy, we'd love to know about your background, your upbringing, and, you know, what's your backstory? What got you so interested in history and preservation, and how'd you end up um, becoming uh, what you are at the National World War I Museum? Yeah, of course. Um, so, I've been here at the National World War I Museum and Memorial for nine years. Uh, my background is actually, I have a master's degree in museum science from the Museum of Texas Tech at Texas Tech University. I actually started out going to school for engineering and after three semesters of that was like, yeah, no, this is not the path for me and decided to flee across campus at Iowa State over to um, the history department. And from there was figuring out if I don't want to teach with a history degree, what am I going to to do with a history degree? So I took some museum studies courses as an undergrad, worked at Living History Farms in Des Moines, Iowa as a historical interpreter for a couple summers and decided Museums is the way it is. It's the path for me. It's um, something I spent a lot of my childhood doing, going to museums that my grandmother, my um, actually my maternal grandmother, and hanging out in those little museums with her around on my um, rural hometown in Iowa. So you're so you're an, an Iowan by birth, and you now are in Missouri or Missouri. How do you pronounce it, Stacy? I pronounce it Missouri, but I've also taken a few other pathways to get here. I've Spent some time, like I said, in Texas, getting my degree from Texas Tech University, did a six-month internship in North Dakota, and then turned around and went back to Roswell, New Mexico for my first job out of grad school at the Roswell Museum and Art Center, and was down in New Mexico for three and a half years, and then got the job here in Kansas City, so a lot closer to home, but maybe still far enough away from home. Yeah, it's always nice to have a a little bit of distance. So. We're talking today about an exhibit that you guys are working on that I just think is really fascinating um, that really kind of dives into sort of the the why of museum work and and that kind of thing, which I think is so interesting. But before we jump into that, um, you know, we have a national audience, um, uh, international for that matter, but... um, People would be, I think, would be interested to know about the National World War One Museum Memorial. You've been there nine years, uh, you mentioned. So where, you know, obviously we, we know a little bit about where you're located, but talk about where it is, um, what the collection covers, the stories you tell. I mean, what should people know about this museum and memorial? And I guess maybe even why is it a museum and memorial? What does that all mean? Yeah, so we are located in Kansas City, Missouri, right down in the downtown area across from Union Station and right next to Crown Center, which is the world headquarters for Hallmark. So everyone that sends out those greeting cards, we're right across the street from Hallmark. And we are the only institution in the United States that tells the story of World War I. 
And we're not just telling the American story of World War I, we actually tell a global story of World War I. So when you come and visit us, the first half of the museum gallery that you go through doesn't even really mention the American involvement. It starts in 1914 and it continues to a large theater, which is where we begin about the 1917 timeline to introduce the American involvement in the war. We are also the second oldest collecting institution in the world for World War I materials, only beat out by the Imperial War Museum, which is located in London. So we kind of have the running joke, you could say, of, well, they joined the war sooner than us, and they only had to cross the English Channel with um, material while we had an entire ocean and half a continent to get to us. Now, we are the National Museum, but we also have the title of National Memorial, and we are why why we're in Kansas City and the National Memorial is always a question that we get. And it's really, we, we were one of the first ones to create this large scale memorial. And we were granted the privilege of National Memorial title by President Obama in 2014. And so it's, I mean, it's interesting that you tell that that full story of World War I. And, and I guess World War I is so... I mean, I, I maybe I'm kind of jumping out here, but I'm curious what you think. I feel like there's a perception that or just sort of a lot of confusion about World War One, right? Like World War Two is we're saving the world from fascism and uh, tyranny and, you know, um, all, all of these terrible things. It's very clear cut about what's happening in World War Two. World War One is much more confusing and also just the way in which it unfolds is confusing. Do people come... Do you feel like most people come to the museum with any understanding of World War One? Are they like World War One military buffs that get there? Or are you having to do a lot of education just on what the heck happened? How did World War One come together? Because it is a really confusing, I mean, there's an Archduke that gets assassinated. I mean, there is a lot of confusion about how all this comes together. Yeah, um, you know, World War One is definitely a lot more confusing than compared to World War Two, And also the Americans joined halfway through, so you were missing half the story of our, you know, because of our lack of involvement, you could say in a way. But when the visitors come here, you get everyone. You get a lot of people that do just come, um, that have no knowledge at all, and happen to see us at on, you know, TripAdvisor or some other vacation travel site, but also because we're right across from Union Station. People go there to visit, they look up the hill, and there we are this giant monument structure on top of one of the highest points in the city. So they get intrigued, come and go, okay, well, you know, we'll spend a few hours here. And so that's a nice thing. We are designed in a way that we are trying to capture all the audiences. Because when you think of a military conflict, you really think of battles and military strategy and all those situations. But really, World War One, you can tell all the stories because you start looking at the women's movement, and you have really the movement towards the right to vote with the 19th Amendment coming through there. You have um, civil rights movement because you have African-American soldiers that go abroad and serve. They get a lot of times serving with the French army where they're given a lot more privileges than they have here in the United States at the time due to segregation. So you have that movement that begins. You have the flow of women moving from the home setting into a workforce um, into that company setting. So really the story of World War One is not just battle strategy. It's the story of all life. So, yeah, I mean, I think 
being able to tell that comprehensive story is just a really powerful way of doing public history um, and, you know, engaging all different audiences. So um, I have not been to the museum, but it's actually on my list of places to go to. So uh, definitely something I want to see. So we're here to talk, though, a little bit more about a new exhibit that I think is really fascinating called Why Keep That? Um, because it gets really at the heart of the work of the museum itself um, and dealing with questions and issues that I suppose the public rarely gets to learn about. Um, but I think is uh, they're often fascinated in. So what what is the exhibit and what led you to mounting something like this? Yeah, so Why Keep That is a free exhibition that's just opened on the Ellis Gallery level of the museum, which is on the lowest level, research center level of our institution. And it's really looking at specifically our archival collection and examining the process that objects take to come into our collection and the decisions behind that. We are an institution that has been collecting since 1920 because our original structure opened to the public in 1926. And so we have hundreds of thousands of objects. So in the end, we can't take everything because just like your house, space is finite in a museum. So this exhibit, we pulled out the more unique items looking at maybe just a random subway ticket from Paris or a billboard sign or things like that, that people look at and go, and then we talk about the process behind actually saving those objects. And it's like, you spend all this time and effort to save this one little train stub. Like, why are you doing that? Because a lot of times when museums, when you go to a museum, you think of the large objects, you think of our artillery pieces, our guns, the uniforms. But what we have here in the archives helps give a story, a voice to those particular types of objects. So... So why, so do you have, I, I, I'm sure you do, because uh, pretty much all professional museums do, particularly if they have a registrar and exhibit curator, but um, you obviously have sort of a collections policy. Um, so maybe take us through a, an item um, uh, and, and we'll dive more into specific items in the, in the exhibit and everything like that. But like, maybe you could talk to us about why keep that? So is there, is, you know, is there an example out there of one that you kept and one that you didn't that you use for the exhibit and and how do you get to that decision making process is it the collections policy is it personal i mean how do how do you get to that um yeah we do have a collections policy here at the institution and that does help us guide us in our decisions now with an institution that's been collecting for 100 years of course there are some areas that we don't have to collect anymore like a general private uniform from World War I and an infantryman war, more than likely that's not something we would potentially bring into the collection just because we already have a hundred other examples of it. Now, when it comes to archival materials, it gets a little more complicated because a lot of archival collections are more unique. But for example, let's say a donor comes to us with a large collection and within this collection, you have personal correspondence, those letters written home, maybe a bunch of um, army manuals. So those two types of materials. Well, our director of archives would look at those materials and go, okay, what, can we, what holes do we currently have in the collection that these materials would fill? Well, the letters are unique because they might be telling the story of a Marine in Bella Wood or you know, something like that. So those we would pull into the collection and formally accession those. Well, those army manuals, they were mass produced. 
and we already have four copies in the collection that are all in good condition. So we may tell the family then, you know, we'll take the letters from you, but sorry, the manuals we already have multiple examples of those we do not, well, we will not bring those into the collection. Yeah, it's interesting. I think people, uh, that's why I think this this exhibit is so fascinating is that it really kind of dives into the why and how of museum work. And I think that, like you say, a lot of people just think about the big objects, but you're dealing with millions of scraps of paper and subway tickets and, and everything like that. Why don't we take a quick break here? And then when we come back, let's talk about the exhibit and maybe some favorite objects and things like that and uh, stories that they tell and things you wish you could keep, but you can't. Uh, and we'll do that right here on Preservecast. Preservecast would like to thank McDo Preservation LLC for sponsoring today's episode. McDo specializes in program development and evaluation, long range planning, and capacity building for nonprofit and government clients. To learn more about McDo's data and community-driven approach and commitment to equity, visit mcdo.com. That's M-C-D-O-U-X.com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Uh, thrilled to be talking today to Stacy Peterson, who is the exhibits manager and registrar at the National World War One Museum and Memorial. And you know, before we took our break, we were talking about uh, not only her background but the background of the museum, the stories that they tell, and we've sort of dived into this new exhibit, "Why Keep That," um, which there's you know an online component of this, so people around the around the world can go and take a look at that. Um, and the link to the museum is in the show notes of this um, episode. So we were talking about how the museum makes these calls, how they how they decide on what they keep and what they don't. Um, in the exhibit itself, there's there's obviously objects and things like that that you're, you're using to tell the story of how you keep things. Do you have um, a few favorite objects that you could tell us about and, and how they're sort of interpreted within this exhibit? Yeah, of course. Um, there's probably about three objects that really come to mind, um, just because either they're fun or they're super unique in the stories that we can tell, or unusual in the stories we can tell. So one of the first things that come to mind is a Paris subway metro ticket. And it's a very small card. Graphically, it's very creative. The font styles used, those sort of things. But of course, you're looking at it going, why would you keep <clears throat> a subway ticket but the stories that we can tell around it. So you can talk about soldiers, you know, going from rural Missouri for the first time traveling to Europe. And while, yes, they are fighting this huge war, this huge battle, they still have some free time. They get to go out. They get to kind of travel and see the places. They go to Paris, experience the city. Um, we have one memoir from a nurse named Ulta May. She was at a hospital just outside of Paris. So she talks about, you know, hopping on the train with some of the other nurses on her days off, going into the city, doing some window shopping and looking at the different styles of hosiery and other undergarments that are being sold in Paris that they're not seeing back in the United States. So that, I like that because it's, so that ticket really tells you, can lead to some fantastic stories being told. Now, there's a couple other items as well, one being something called a smileage book. One, I love it because smileage is such a fun word. You can't, you know, I think we need to have that word brought into today's slang. And what does smileage mean? Yes, yeah, so a smileage was just a term that was created, and it's literally these little coupon books that a family could buy 
send back to their loved one, soldier, nurse, servicemen at different training camps that would allow them to go see maybe different um, theater shows, maybe some boxing shows, just different events taking place at the various um, what they call Liberty Huts. So these are unique because they were meant to be used up. You know, they were meant to be used all the coupons in them. And we have a couple of little booklets that still have a few coupons available in them for shows still to be seen. Now, one of the last big things I like is it's a full-size poster created by a woman in England. And it's basically a barometric chart of her emotions during the war. So she tracked her emotions from day to day and at the end of the war, combined it all into a graph so you can see the ebbs and flows of her emotions depending upon what battles took place, armistice itself, and she created a poster, sold it as a fundraiser, but also included a little note on there saying, if anyone else did this as well, I would love to compare our charts. D- did anyone else do it? Do we know? As far as I know, no one else did because it's it's a very unusual item. Now, Stacy, did you do that over COVID? That would have been perfect. You could have sold it, man. That's what I did not, but I feel like it, I had a missed opportunity there. I know. You guys could have sold it in the in the gift shop. <laughs> that would have been fantastic. Would have been. So um, are there items you wish you could keep that like that you maybe personally are like, that's so cool. But given the realities of the museum, the collections, you just can't. Or is most of the stuff that you can't keep sort of like the the 150th example of a enlisted man's uniform? Like you just you understand that you can draw the line there. Or are there are there sometimes things that you, Stacey Peterson, personally are like, that'd be cool. But you just can't. Yeah. No, and this is a question I always ask um, our department, um, the individuals in our department that actually are responsible for collecting the objects. And really for them, yeah, there's things that, you know, are just fine. Again, it's the 150th example and it is what it is. The one that's really hard is when there's disappointment from the families that are donating because, you know, they are maybe the last people in their family. They know their children are not interested in these materials. You know, they've been preserving them for a hundred years. So now what can they do with them if they're not, if we're not going to take them? So in many of those cases, that's the hardest, um, that's the hardest thing. But we do try to at least give feedback to those individuals, but maybe some other places they can go. So looking at perhaps their local historical society in the town that that man or woman was from, talking to history teachers, social studies teachers in middle school, high school grade levels, because a lot, some teachers I know love to have hands-on materials in the classroom to enhance learning. So we try to help them find some outlet for those materials, but in the end, we just can't keep it all. It's real, it's a hard thing. Yeah. Why keep that? Mm -hmm. Basically. (laughs) So, um, just curious, uh, do you personally collect stuff? I actually really don't. I really? Feel like it's- so it's sort of like you draw this like line between personal and professional. You're like, I'm so you're not like a pack rat at home with like uh, like you, you don't squirrel away World War One enlisted men's uniforms in a closet. No, I don't. I feel like it's because <laughs> here in my job, I feel like I have to be like a very organized Quarter collector situation. Well, so I go home and I'm just like, nope, not not doing this. We're just going to let everything just kind of be very minimal and. So no collections of your own. You're not a collector personally. No, no. growing up, I would collect some porcelain dolls, but I kind of grew out of that and 
I've moved enough times, I guess you could say that <laughs> I got tired of just packing all the materials. So at least at this point in time, I can say I'm not really a collector. Okay. Interesting. I think that's fascinating to see that, that line between personal and professional. So, um, what's on the horizon for them, for you and for the museum for that matter? Um, so this, this exhibit, you know, you just mounted this, so this is a big one and people can look at it online. There's an, an online component to it, which is really cool, particularly given COVID. Um, but, um, what's next? What are you working on? I know there's always something in the, on the horizon for museums. You gotta, you gotta keep, uh, keep, keep it rolling. So what's the, what, what's on the horizon for you in terms of new exhibits? Yeah. Um, you know, we're working on creating those coming up and really one of the big projects that's on my plate is one of the things I oversee is digitization of the museum and memorials collection. One of our key points in our five-year strategic plan is digitizing the entire collection, which is very, very aspirational. And my goal is to try to complete that to the best of my ability. Right now, we have about 45,000 records available on our online collections database. So just continuing to get materials accessible to the world um, so we can you know, be a good source for those primary materials that a lot of educators really want to be able to use in their classrooms and just for the general public to be able to explore and learn from. So just a small project, digitizing everything in the collection. That sounds... Yeah, I mean, you guys will have yeah. that wrapped up pretty soon. Exactly. Very, very small project. Um, <laughs> what are you doing with like large objects, like 3D objects, like a, a cannon or something like that, or an artillery piece? Are you scanning them or what's the digitization concept there? At this point in time, we'll just be photographing them. Eventually, I would love to get to the point of being able to do some like 3D modeling, things like that. But really, the priority is just getting it digitized and accessible via our database and then as different opportunities and partnerships present themselves then we can move forward with maybe some higher level modeling projects so if people want to learn more or find out more about you or the um the museum itself um or they want to look at what you have digitized or they want to learn about this exhibit um where do they go where can they find all of that about um this museum yeah, if you go to our website, um, which is theworldwar.org, you'll be able to explore everything from that um, website itself. So it combines everything from our current and past exhibitions, both in person as well as we have several virtual online exhibitions. Um, you can also access our online collections database through that website, as well as those that are interested in education, those teachers out there. We have a database of lesson plans related to World War I, as well as other teacher resources. We're doing a lot of virtual field trips right now due to the fact that students can't travel to come see us. So we're trying to get ourselves virtually into as many classrooms as possible. But also we have an extremely robust lecture series so that we are doing over Zoom and you know live streaming across the globe. And all those are recorded and are available on our YouTube channel. So as we continue forth through the winter and people are holed up, you know, if they want to just stream World War One lectures, we are the place for you to come to. Well that that is uh if, if people are looking for World War One content, um you uh you certainly have cornered the market on that. Um and uh the most difficult question we ask everyone before uh, we conclude here, your favorite historic place or site? Probably whichever one I'm at at the moment. 
but to give a more concrete answer, I'll just keep it local and say here in Kansas City, um, it would be Elmwood Cemetery, which is a historic cemetery in the city. It is the second oldest, but it is the oldest integrated cemetery in the city. It's been integrated from day one, and I just love it because I love cemeteries. They're gorgeous. Architecturally, you know, the monuments and everything in them are great. They're a great place currently for social distancing. You can go out and stroll and not have to worry about running into everyone. But I also feel from working in museums and working in history, they're kind of grounding because every person has two things in common, birth and death. And when you're walking through a cemetery, you're surrounded by all those individuals that it doesn't matter how famous they were or not famous. They all have a story to be told. Well, that is a... uh... A really fantastic way to conclude this. That is a, an awesome way of looking at all of this, and we'll have to keep that in mind. That's a that's a that's a gem from PreserveCast for this year. Everybody has two things in common: <laughs> birth and death. <laughs> um, well, this has been really fascinating. So great to hear about the work that you're doing, um, and just thrilled to have had the opportunity to talk with you. Um, looking forward to seeing what's next um, at the museum. Keep in touch. I will. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation, and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.